0: This is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Mora, her autobiography, written by Mora Limpany, with Margot Strickland and published in 1991 by Peter Owens. Chapter Two Two Plates and a Symphony Orchestra My life in Belgium was so happy. I loved my school, I loved my work, I loved everyone, and everyone loved me. Four years passed, and then the bomb fell. I spent most of the holidays with the Brussels families, as the expenses of travelling to England would have been too much for my mother. But on one of my rare visits to England, my uncle Charles was surprised at how foreign I had become. I was an English girl, but I could hardly speak English, and in every way was Belgian. He told my mother that she ought to bring me back to England. The announcement that I was to be taken away from the convent was greeted with tears and consternation from me, my friends the nuns, and the kindly families in Brussels. Dolefully my things were packed, and then I was taken to London. At one period of her life, my mother had taught at the convent school of Our Lady of Sion in Chepstow Villas, near the Bayswater Road, London they had loved her there and so agreed to take me as a boarder at very reduced fees it was a great joy when my mother and i were invited to luncheon with my aunt dory and my cousins peggy and pat in their london flat in south kensington i was very excited longing to meet again my beautiful cousins with whom i was sure i would make great friends and i arrived from belgium a most affectionate child When we reached their flat where my cousins and aunt awaited us, I rushed up to them in turn and planted kisses on both of each of their cheeks in the Belgian manner. They were astonished by my unreserved behavior. At that time displays of affection were not done in England. After luncheon, my aunt led the way to her bedroom, where, assembled on the bed, was a selection of clothes, which they were going to give my mother and me. We were most grateful, and left heaped with carrier bags filled with lovely things we could never have afforded to buy. I doubt whether my mother ever bought herself anything. Our Lady of Sion had been founded by Theodore Ratisbone. Born in Strasbourg in 1807, he was converted to Roman Catholicism and ordained as a priest in 1830. His mission was to bring about greater understanding between Jews and Christians. The lovely wide corridors of the Grand House in Villas, off the Bayswater Road, were populated by nuns dressed in voluminous black habits with black veils floating from stiff white bandeau round their heads and chins. The girls wore black pleated skirts, stockings, bodices, shoes, relieved by starched white collars and cuffs, and, according to our forms, a coloured belt, red, yellow, green, violet, and blue. From my school in a little provincial Belgian town where I had been loved, spoiled, Gatte, I suddenly found myself a boarder in what seemed to me a huge building in a capital city among hundreds of strange girls. I endured the first term in silence. When the time came for me to return to Our Lady of Sion after the holidays, my mother and I were going up in the lift at Notting Hill Underground Station when suddenly something gave way inside me. I jumped up and down in the lift, screaming, I won't go back. I will not go back. My mother had a very difficult time calming me down. I had to go back to the convent and gradually settled down to work. The convent had an unusual system of marking. Part of the founder's educational creed was the absence of the prefect system. Pupils' marks were to be awarded by them according to their consciences, This was to encourage and teach the girls honesty. Partly because I was unhappy, I suppose, on one occasion, whose details I cannot recall, I gave myself higher marks than I deserved. Of course I was found out and reported to Mother Paula, who instructed me to stay behind after lessons were over and the other pupils had gone. I received a long sermon from Mother Paula about honesty, And it must have had a profound effect upon me, because ever since I have found it very difficult not to tell the truth, however disagreeable and undiplomatic. I have often gone to the other extreme and been tactless and too outspoken, which sometimes offends. Honesty in one's work is essential for an artist, and in this regard, Mother Paula's lecture was another valuable lesson taught me by the nuns. My brothers were now away at prep school, also in Belgium, and my mother rented a flat at Bexhill-on-Sea in Sussex, where I spent the school holidays. Partly because I was still homesick for the Belgium I had loved so dearly, my mother also found a cheap holiday house in a tiny village on the Belgian coast near Vestende called Lombardside. It was only a half-hour's journey on the tram from the coast at Ostend. It was heaven for me to be back in Belgium, speaking French again, to play with my brothers, now grown much taller than I, and almost strangers. But not for long. We were a very close family, although developing in such different ways. Joseph was, even so young, religious, while Tony was reckless and loved danger. We had a ten-minute walk to the beach at Lombardside, where our favorite pastime was digging the wet, ribbed sand after the tide had gone out, and prying succulent mussels from the rocks. We would fill our pails with them and haul them back to the cottage for our mother to boil for our supper. We would crawl round the small stove and watch the black, barnacled shells open in the simmering water. They were delicious. There was no piano at the rented house, so as my mother was determined I should not forgo my practicing, she arranged for me to go and practice daily on the rickety little upright piano at the local café. The owner decided to arrange a concert. He asked a soprano to sing. I was asked to play the piano, and the local newspaper was invited to attend and report this unusual event in the little seaside resort. My mother, brothers, and even my father all sat at small tables, listening to the soprano, trilling her high notes, when a young man at the next table with a notebook on his knee and a pencil in his hand leaned over towards me confidentially. "'She's awful,' he whispered. He was the newspaper reporter. The soprano finished her song, and it was my turn next.' I cannot recall what I played, but when I finished and bowed, I rejoined my family, and he had gone. The following day, I rushed out to the local shop to buy a newspaper and scoured the pages. To my amazement, I read an ecstatic paragraph about the singer. I decided then that I would not always believe what critics wrote. Not far away from Lombardsida was Le Coq, where there was an excellent golf course, a magnet as far as my father was concerned. On the links at Le Coq, my father met a young Hungarian, a golf enthusiast, on holiday with his wife. They played together every day and became great friends. At the end of the holidays, the young Hungarian was so impressed with my father and his prowess at golf that he invited him to be his guest in Hungary, to teach him the game and advise on the laying out of a golf course on his estate. The salary was to be five pounds a week, and my father and mother would be honoured guests at the castle of Count Laszlo Karolyi, for this was the name of my father's golfing partner this extraordinary state of affairs was mana from heaven for my parents always scraping along as best they could my father could not refuse such a munificent offer from one of the greatest aristocratic families in hungary he casually accepted the invitation and when we three children were back at school in the autumn my parents took the train to budapest and the Karolyi estate outside the capital when my uncle charlie now Rear Admiral Limpenny, came home on leave, I was invited again to their London flat, and, having been at the convent of Our Lady of Sion for some time, I had grown more reserved in my manner. But I still spoke English with a foreign accent. "'Why can't she be like the other English girls?' he asked my mother. "'Riding,' and so on." He offered to pay for half a dozen lessons for me at a riding school in Wimbledon. The charge was two and a half guineas. My cousins, of course, rode beautifully, and even hunted. But I had never been on a horse in my life. My aunt lent me jodhpurs, purse, boots, and a hacking jacket, together with a hard hat outgrown by my cousins, and off to Wimbledon I went for my first riding lesson. It was the most terrible ordeal for me. First of all, I was terrified of this huge animal, quiet old hack though it may have been, and when I was sitting on it, helped by the instructress, I was even more terrified to find myself so high up on a moving creature that took no notice when I tugged at the reins. I sat rigid with fright like a pole for five lessons. I never took the sixth. After this episode, I think my uncle gave up hope of his niece ever becoming the conventional English teenager he wished for. During my second year, at the convent of Our Lady of Sion, I began to enjoy hockey and tennis. When we were set an essay to write with the title, My Hero, I chose Beethoven. Meanwhile, glowing letters arrived for me almost every day from my mother in Hungary. It was the highlight of her life. She and my father were so happy, he playing golf every day with the Count and planning with him the layout of the golf course, while my mother reveled in the countryside, the music, and the art of Budapest. Both my parents were deeply appreciated by their hosts and their families. All this time I had been studying the piano out of school hours with an old friend of my mother's, Professor Ambros Covielo, With him, I worked on the Grieg Piano Concerto, and he recommended that I enter for the Ada Lewis Scholarship at the Royal Academy of Music, where he himself had been a student and then a professor. I would have worked hard at my studies anyway, but now I had a goal to spur me to success, it was 1929 when I sat for the scholarship at the Royal Academy of Music in the Marlebone Road. The result would not be known until August. Meanwhile, when the term ended, I went to join my mother in Bexhill for the summer holidays. Along the coast, not far from Bexhill, was the old fishing port of Hastings and its other half, St. Leonards-on-Sea. Byron and his sister had spent a holiday in the fishing quarter and the Duke of Wellington his honeymoon Decimus Burton the architect had designed much of saint Leonards but the twin towns had never attained the glamour and celebrity of Brighton there was great competition among the seaside resorts to attract holiday makers and the powers that be at Hastings and St. Leonard's, decided that what was needed was a splendid new concert hall to attract visitors. It was to be built where the towns met. Some attractive public gardens had been created above an outcrop of natural rock, the White Rock. The White Rock Pavilion at Hastings was soon opened and launched with great eclat, drawing all the noted musicians of the day and devoted audiences. The well-known conductor Basil Cameron appeared weekly during the season, and when my mother heard that a boy prodigy was to play the piano at one of the concerts at the pavilion, she obtained tickets for herself and me. The pavilion faced the sea, sun and promenade, So far in my life I had practiced and practiced, and I had sat for many examinations, and passed all of them, musical and scholastic, but I had never attended a single concert. The excitement and anticipation of sitting in the audience that summer's afternoon at Hastings is something I shall never forget. I have no recollection of the program— but was deeply impressed by Cameron, an elegantly garbed figure in white tie and tails, baton in hand. The boy soloist's name I have long forgotten. I have related how the nuns at Tongra had taught me humility, and the nuns in London, honesty. In the interval, I turned to my mother. "'Oh, mummy,' I cried, "'couldn't I play with the orchestra?' So when we returned to Bexhill, my mother composed a letter to the conductor. To our surprise, Mr. Cameron replied that he would be prepared to hear me play, naming a date and time at the White Rock Pavilion. For this crucial audition, I played the Mendelssohn G Minor Piano Concerto. Mr. Cameron was agreeably surprised, and told us he would be delighted if I would play with his orchestra, but the soloists for the concert season at Hastings were already engaged. Would I play at Harrowgate on 8th August? 8th August? That was ten days before my 13th birthday. We joyfully agreed. What would I play? Mr. Cameron asked. The only concerto I had memorized was the Mendelssohn in G minor, which I had studied with Jules de at Liège and had just played. Mr. Cameron suggested that I should therefore play this work. Then he turned to my mother. What is her full name? he asked. Mora Johnston, she replied. Mora is a good concert name, commented Mr. Cameron thoughtfully, but Johnston does not go with it. I suppose he meant that Mora sounded like the kind of romantic and exotic name beloved by concert-goers, while Johnston sounded too prosaic. ''What is your maiden name?'' he asked my mother. ''Limpenny,'' answered my mother, stressing the first syllable. ''A bit better,'' remarked the conductor, repeating the name, savoring the sound. He still seemed dissatisfied. What about the old spelling? My mother suggested helpfully. It is L Y M P A N Y. Perfect! Exclaimed Basil Cameron. So in a few moments I became Mora Limpany, and I have remained Mora Limpany all my life. At that time, it was believed impossible for an Englishman or Englishwoman to succeed in the world of classical music or ballet, without assuming a foreign name. Families of budding soloists held conferences with agents and impresarios to invent a new name for the artist. Thus, Sarah Nelson, the cellist, became Zara Nelsova. Peggy Hookham became Margot Fontaine. Lillian Alicia Marks was transformed by diagilev into Alicia Markova. There was no need for me to pretend. My slight foreign accent was genuine, and so was my name, but I was an English girl. Everybody loved the name Moora Limpany, except my Johnston nun aunts, who feared the loss of my father's name Johnston might suggest that I was illegitimate. I could hardly believe that I was to play with a real orchestra under a well-known conductor. It was an extraordinary development, and the concert at Harrogate was not far away. All my energies were now directed to preparing for this most vital debut. The fee was to be five guineas, which would cover the train fares, hotel, and all expenses. My unmarried Aunt Frances... "'was to travel with my mother and me to Harrowgate, "'and while I got on with my practicing "'there were endless discussions as to what I should wear "'and how my hair should be done. "'I was more worried about practicing my curtsy, "'or should I bow? "'I always loved clothes, "'and the day we left for Yorkshire on the way to the station "'I saw in a shop window a dear little black velvet cape.' "'from which peeped a lining of peach-coloured silk. "'I drew my mother's attention to it "'and begged her to give it to me. "'My dear mother made so many sacrifices for me, "'and when we boarded the train, "'the peach-silk-lined black velvet cape was mine. "'As for my hair, "'it was to remain in two long plaits over my shoulders. "'I was still only twelve, "'a few days from my thirteenth birthday.' Harrowgate was a fashionable resort in Yorkshire, where, in the classical royal pump room, ladies and gentlemen gathered to take the curative Sulfurous Waters. Before the rehearsal, I was photographed in front of the concert hall, wearing my tailored coat and schoolgirl shoes, music case in hand, hat on my head, Above and behind me, over the entrance to the concert hall, was the astonishing sight of my name in capital letters, Mura Limpani. At the hotel I changed into a white dress with a tiered frilly skirt and white shoes and socks, while my mother tied a large white satin bow to the side of my head. With the velvet cape over my shoulders, I was ready to go to the concert— my very first performance in public. I asked Basil Cameron, Shall I curtsy or bow? He replied, Whichever you feel happiest with. Included in the programme were Beethoven's overture Prometheus, a suite by Handel, and Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony, and a Mrs. Betty Bannerman was to sing an aria, J'ai perdu mon amour, from Gluck's Orfeo. I was not at all nervous. When it was my turn, I walked on to the platform to see row upon row of faces before me, sat down at the piano, and played the concerto. Two plates and a symphony orchestra was the headline in the next day's Daily Express. The reporter described me as a quaint little figure sitting among the Harrogate Municipal Orchestra at the huge grand piano, creating a piquant contrast to the symphonic thunders of which she was the centre. The headline in the Yorkshire Post for Friday, 9th August, was Child Pianists' Finished Work. And below came these comments. When these gifted young people essay works of a more exacting nature, we are apt to forget the music, in marvelling at their mere ability. Miss moore was well advised in choosing Mendelssohn's elegant piano concerto in G minor. Her youthfulness was symbolized by the large bow in her curly hair. Gave a finished and pleasing performance. The music is peculiarly youthful. One might say almost girlish. Miss Limpany's technique was fluent, neat, and she chose her variations of color and force with correct taste. And then, wonder of wonders, a letter arrived announcing that I had won the scholarship to the Royal Academy of Music and was to start there in September.